What's up, guys? It's Little D from FMF. When I'm not mixing gas and hauling ass, I'm listening to Big MX Radio. We can't expect that everyone is as passionate about racing as we are. can't expect that everyone is able to hear the silent call of the sea at 5am. Not everyone possesses the ability to smell the difference between rich and lean. Nor the ear to differentiate the bark of two cylinders from four. It would not be fair of us to assume that the world understands the yearning and overwhelming compulsion that we have to push through pain, angst, frustration and failure. Some people might not understand the desire to test physical limits conquer fear, or to tangle with the forces of gravity and physics. But we don't make product for them. We look to the future but embrace our past. We study. We analyze. We race on Sunday so we can innovate on Monday. We exercise trial and error religiously. Through our commitment to the pursuit of perfection, we learn. How to make product for the people that are capable of dedicating everything to sport. Whether there is a championship involved or not. Alpine stars, one goal, one vision.
25 Loyal here from Grunball. Kingsley turns that five sideways. Brian the gate is down. This is a sharp left-hander. Who's going to shot? Looks like Darcy Lange on that Richmond Gallon Kawasaki gets the jump. That's where it all started. Big MX Radio, brought to you by Fly Racing USA, is on the air. Fueled by passion, focused on motocross. W Wheels USA, Moto Ice Wrap, Viral Goggle Bread, and Maxima USA make it possible to bring you the news, the interviews, and the point of views inside the sport of motocross. The gate's about to drop on Big MX Radio. Welcome to the Fly Racing Big MX Radio Podcast Show brought to you by Justified Cultures, Traction MXC Covers, and Moto Ice Wrap. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt. With us on the line, we've got none other than the great Paul Buckley. Paul, uh, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty good, Brad. It's a, a little bit of a dreary dreary day here in New England, but, um, you know, it can rain all at once on a Thursday. We had some pretty nice weather last Saturday for the Southwark Nationals, so um, everything's good. No doubt. In a national that even you can uh, basically uh, labeled as one of the best ever um like for those who don't know, I believe you are a New England native. You've lived there for a long period of time. What made this last week, this last weekend's national, stand out for you like that? Well, you know, this is um, the second year that Southwick's come back. Um, when it disappeared, I think in twelve or thirteen. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the year, but a couple of years ago. I, I would have yeah. bet my house that um, it was never going to be back at Southwick, and that was kind of a sad day. So, um, you know, when the guys at MX Sports said, um, hey, Paul, do you think uh, Keith Johnson would want to run a national? I uh, pretty much fell off the, my seat here in the office. Um, and this year, you know, I did the advertising and the social media marketing for it. So that kind of made it kind of special when I, you know, kind of felt I had a hand in getting getting the crowd there. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was pretty satisfying. They had uh, almost as good as crowd as, Oh, last year when it was the comeback race. So, um, yeah. And then, you know, the track looked great. The racing was really good, especially in, you know, as it always is in the 250 class. Um, Tomac pretty much put on a clinic in the 450 class, pretty much passing a few guys each moto to take over the lead and then just going away. I think he probably came in to this year with the confidence um, that he got when he beat Roxanne last year in both motos. So that was cool to see. Yeah. 
Um, no, absolutely. It seemed like uh, this year, and like like maybe not as predominant as the very first year it came back. People are super excited about that, but uh, they 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 come out in droves to uh, to support that national, and it's uh, it's a passionate group of people. What uh, what 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 do you think makes uh, the New England fans so passionate about whatever sport it happens to be? They really seem to enjoy and embrace uh, the the thrill of sport. Um. Boy, that's um, that's a pretty tough question, but um, you know, I think you're you're right about that. That um, around here, the the fans really support the Red Sox, the Patriots, the Bruins, the Celtics, uh, or or motocross. So maybe it's just something uh, something about the people of New England. They're really loyal to their chosen sports uh, and really I guess diehard fans so for that, sure no that, it's uh, they're almost like uh, soccer fanatics in the fact that like doesn't matter what the sport is they come out and uh, they sport sport the colors and uh, they they bleed it uh they you know they sure do um, and you know Southwick was definitely no no exception uh, I got to see tons of people that I've, you know, haven't seen at the regular local races, but they showed up for for the national um, just to support the track and see all the friends that they see maybe once or twice a year. Uh, so what what makes them that that fanatic? I'm I'm not sure, but I'm sure glad that they are. Absolutely, and uh, also big, uh, big fans of your work. You've been working in this uh, industry, and we, you mentioned it off off air since 1975, the year my dad got his very first motocross bike—not uh, first motorcycle, but first motocross bike, a, uh, a Suzuki TM125. Uh, back in the day when uh, two strokes roam, w- ruled the world, uh, twin sh- twin shocks ruled the world, and uh, uh, they were we, we weren't quite liquid cooled, which was for a long time a big feature in the motocross industry. Industry. Um, a ton of things have changed uh, within the uh, within the motor sp- the sport. One thing that hasn't changed is the passion for it, and the fact that Paul Buckley is still capturing photos of it. Um, explain to us how you got started a little bit. Alrighty. Well, um, let's see. Kind of the the story is. Um, when I, when I was 13, my dad was killed in a car crash. And my mom said, hmm. We, we lived in, in Peabody, Mass., which is home of Jimmy Dakotas. Um, yes, he's rode my motorcycle. Nice. Um, <laughs> it, it's a pretty blue-collar town, bunch of factories, um, a little, I don't know, rough around the edges, maybe. But um, I, I guess a good place to grow up. My mom said, you know, I don't, I don't know if I want you kids hanging around the street the street corners all summer, so let, let's go buy a, a camp up in Maine for the summers. So we did. We went up to Maine, found a place in Limerick, Maine. All the kids around the, the lake had mini bikes, you know, Honda Mini Trails, BT-70s, depth uh, through 50 Hondas, everything. So I said, hey, Mom, can we get a mini bike? She says, um, Sure. So we went to uh, Kingsworth Cycles in Beverly, Mass., and 
bought a CT70 Honda back in 1970. And while we were there, I would pick up an occasional um, local motocross magazine called Cycle Sport. And after a, a year or two, they were talking about a, a racetrack opening up in Waterboro, Maine, one town away from where we had our summer camp in Maine. So I talked to my mom into dropping me off at the racetrack because I still didn't have a, I guess, a driver's license back then. Um, so she did, and I would, you know, snap a few photos of the guys that I knew who raced out of cycles back then. And then later on in the week, I'd bring the photos to them and show them. And they said to me, like, you should sell these. I'm like, well, who the heck would buy these? And they told me that they would buy every single one that I shot. It was uh, Bobby Mayhouse, who's since passed away, Ricky Hicks, and Dave Brillen. And those guys were true to their word. Every time I brought photos either to the shop for them to see or later on at the racetracks, they would buy every single one. And that pretty much got me started shooting photos at the local races around here in New England, which I've been doing since 75 and still do to this day. Um, <coughs> Sorry. That's right. So naturally, when the Southwick National rolled around in 76, I had the publisher of that local magazine. Uh, it was called Cycle Sport back then, and the publisher was Bob Hicks. I asked Bob if he could get me a press pass, and he did. Um, so that's how I got to shoot my first national. And from that race, I had photos published in Motocross Action, maybe some in Cycle Guide, Popular Cycling, um, maybe even some in Dirt Bike. But that kind of launched the career that's still kicking these days. <laughs> that it is um the fact like who who are some of the the local hotshots that were uh, terrorizing the factory pros <coughs> excuse me um who are some of the local uh hotshots that were terrorizing the local hot the lo- or the factory pros uh back then because uh it's it's always been a uh, kind of a, a common uh, common theme of these uh, these sand monsters coming up and uh, these local guys uh, giving the the factory guys fits even back then. Yeah, um, you know, back then in in '76 when the the national came around, uh, Jimmy Angus was of course on on Team Can Am and and did pretty well at Southwick. Maybe not quite as well as he had hoped, but. Um, I think he had a pretty decent day. Then there was, a, let's see, Charlie I at Mark Robillard. A bunch of the New England kids rode the support class back. One national class and then one support class for that day. There weren't two national classes. So a lot of the New England kids did the support class. Guys like Mark Manchester, Jimmy Meenan, Bobby Mayhouse, 
Ricky Hicks um, would always do well in the support class. And let's see, not too many of them rode the, the national class. Later on, you know, guys would race the national classes in the the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Guys like Pat Barton, Mike Treadwell, um, obviously John Dowd and Doug Henry, uh, Jojo Keller. Some of those guys had pretty good successes on the whole national. Tony LaRusso. <clears throat> Tony LaRusso, Scott Carter. Um, let's see. There'd always be a, a bunch of New England guys that would make the, the top 20 at any Southwark National. Yeah, they just uh, familiar territory for them, and they uh, they twist the throttle in, in, in friendly confines. Um, like going back to like when you're first starting to shoot nationals, and uh, like after you shot your first one, did that uh, kind of create more of an appetite to go to more races, and uh, or, or did you did you mainly stick uh, around the, the New England area? Well, it, it definitely um, created an, an appetite to go to more races. Uh, I think later on that year, I, I went to Unadilla and shot the Trans USA, and then. Um, let's see, started traveling to a few more races, maybe in, I think, 1980, I started going to Atlanta and Daytona to shoot some of those, and then, let's see, I guess it was a few years later when I started flying around to races and, you know, shooting Anaheim and San Diego and Phoenix, um, and then, you know, flying back out to shoot Glen Helen and Hangtown and uh, a bunch of nationals for, for magazines and clothing companies and uh, gear manufacturers. What do you feel like uh, in your earliest days, what stood out about your photos? Uh, like, was it capturing a moment in time, uh, just the way you framed up a, fo- a shot? And uh, where did you kind of use your, like, learn your skills? Or was it all trial and error back then, which, by the way, was a pretty expensive endeavor back then when uh, you could take a, a whole day's worth of photos uh, only to realize that you had the lens cap on? <laughs> well, it, it would be pretty hard <laughs> take a day's worth of photos with the lens cap on, but um, I, back then you could make some mistakes. I've um, loaded film wrong, so I thought I shot, you know, 36 photos, but the film never advanced, and I'd have a, a roll of blank photos, and, you know, of course that would be uh, right at the start of a race, so I'd miss, like, the 250 class hole shot or something like that when I thought, I've got a killer shot of this start and the film would be blank. But yeah, it, wow. um, it, it was an expensive time. I can remember going to races and having, having to spend 500 bucks on film and processing. Um, so I guess what, what made my photos stand out were probably capturing good action and 
really having a having a, a good composition. So the photos were artistically nice looking, and I'd always try to watch the backgrounds. Some people can take photos that capture good motocross racing action, but then they've got outhouses and broken chain link fences and a bunch of crap in the background that really takes away from the artistic quality of a photo. And I've kind of always prided myself in not having porta cans or ambulances in the background of my photos. Okay. And, and sometimes it only takes moving a couple feet this way, a couple feet that way to get a, a really nice background. So that's mm-hmm. helped. And then I, I think I try to watch the, the lighting so that I don't know, I shoot in such a direction that it kind of optimizes the quality of the light at any given time of day. You know, the all us photographers love to shoot at the quote unquote golden hours of the day, early in the morning, late in the afternoon. Unfortunately, national motos hardly ever happen at, yeah. the, at the, those times. Maybe you almost get first. better photos from practice then. Um, yeah, that's for sure. Like the first couple of practice sessions are pretty nice, and then the light kind of goes away. And unfortunately, the first couple of motos are usually the worst time of the day for shooting. But I've kind of learned to maybe shoot backlit or just find a spot that has the best lighting for the what I've what I'm dealt with. So I think that's what's made my stuff stand out and maybe why I've had so many, you know, photo contracts with Fox or Oakley or Spy, um, Cinefilo, Garnet, Alpine Stars over the years where they could use my photos in their ads or catalogs. So, uh, <clears throat> who were one of some of the first uh, companies and uh, and, and uh, like uh, uh, the bigger uh, illustrations that uh, and the publications that started to use your work? And at first, like, uh, what, what was the exchange for for your work? Because you said like five hundred dollars for uh, processing and and uh, um, and and, and get, developing the, the the film. You'd have to be uh, compensated quite a bit just just to get uh, those those photos into print. Um, yeah, that's for sure. Um, well, I, I would say, you know, one of my first commercial customers was Fox. I met, uh, Jeff Fox at Unadilla, I think either in 76 or 77 when he himself was at, at the race shooting home movies of Mark Barnett on his team Fox Suzuki, um, that's but, cool. Yeah, uh, it was really cool. I had a, a box of black and white photos from uh, the Southwick race and and I think maybe one other race that I showed them. Um, let's see. So I, you know, got to talk to him and had photos in the Fox catalogs from probably back then up until 
probably 2007 when I kind of stopped traveling the national circuit. So they were really pretty awesome to deal with and I, I guess had the had the big wallet enough to pay for some photos. And, you know, motocross action bought a ton of photos early on and that was really good to get my name out there. They they paid horribly, but everybody got motocross action. You know, they paid maybe twenty bucks a photo, which you know, there was no way they gotta, they gotta take a lot of photos to pay for that five hundred dollars. <laughs> uh that's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. Um and you know, Renthal's been good. Axo was phenomenal back in the day when uh, Jim Hale owned it, yep. especially when they put out Inside Motocross magazine when Fran Kuhn was the editor. Um, okay. Those four magazines are still the, the hallmark of motocross magazines and maybe even the the pinnacle of magazines for any form of motor racing period. They stand up today. Uh, so yeah, they was seem great. to set the standard. Uh, for sure, they definitely did, and that's rarely been met. Um, boy, there's been you know a, a ton of companies. Um, let's see, Cinesilo's been good, Garnier. Um, Alpine Stars was always fun to work with. Uh, Kenny Safford, the art director back then, super creative. I remember one time I was shooting the Daytona Supercross podium the year that Jeff Emig won it, maybe 96, 97, around there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was shooting on with autofocus lenses back then. Um, and the autofocus sensor caught a drop of champagne that the camera tracked. And that was sharp, but Jeff was just a blur, and the, all the champagne behind that one drop was a huge blur. But I threw the slide in the package anyways, and the next month when I opened up Racer X, there's a two-page spread of this champagne shower and a huge, blurry Jeff Emig, um, and it was a Alpine Star ad. There you go. Couldn't That's pretty cool. Uh, it was really cool. Um, and I think that just showed the confidence that Alpine Star had in running images like that just to get people to say, wow, you know, Alpine Star is pretty cool. And, uh, you know, if, if you can, I'm sure anybody that goes to the races knows how many pair of Alpine Star boots are out there these days. So. I think that oh, quite a few. Yeah, quite a few. There's, uh, there's, there's quite a few in my garage. Even those, the guys <laughs> at Alpine Star are awesome, and uh, I've loved those. Uh, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're like the Ferrari or the, the BMW or the, the, the Lexus of 
motocross boots. You want to be able to enjoy those boots. You want to be able to own them. And I think that it's just such an aspiring company. Uh, some people prefer a hinged boot, and, and I, that's their preference. But uh, I think as far as like a brand that you want to to have on your body, as far as protecting you, they're 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 the tops. As far as I'm concerned, as far as uh, boots and uh, neck braces, knee braces, you name it. So uh, yeah, absolutely. And and a company that um, honestly has enough confidence in their own like people know what the boots look like they don't need to have every every ad have just like basically just the boots or whatever it has like just to say like yeah we like wear some alpine stars and you'll spray some champagne yourself right right and then i i would have to say that um another company or another publication that came along um later on in my career has got to be racer x uh you know, I've been friends with Davey since the the newspaper days when, um, you know, we were both a lot younger. But he's been a, a huge supporter of, of Buckley Photos, you know, since since the newspaper days. Uh, runs, you know, a bunch of my photos to, the, to this day. So that's pretty cool. Um, ran a bunch of covers. I think I have uh, still the second amount of covers next to Simon Cudby, of course, and he's got tons more than me. But yeah, um, yeah, Davey and the guys have been really good to me, so I definitely got to give them a shout out. Well, definitely, and, and like um, much much the same way people aspire to have uh, a pair of Alpine Stars boots on their feet, many, many, many people. Uh, aspire to have a Paul Bluckley photo framed on their wall. It seems like um, it, you've become synonymous with a, a quality, uh, thought-provoking photo that just captures a moment in time like no other. And I, I like, is that the, are you cognitive of that on a regular basis? Like, do you do you understand the uh, the impact that you've had on people's lives and the fact that like I from Canada didn't I, I didn't get to see a professional uh, motocross race until I was uh, like an adult. I drove myself down to Millville uh, when I was 18, and I, and I watched one firsthand. And prior to that, I'd never got to see a professional, uh, an American professional race. I'd seen Canadian ones, but not, I, I, that kind of pales in comparison to a U.S. national. And uh, the fact that so many people, whether it's abroad in Europe or, or anywhere else in, in the in the states, or even up here in Canada, fell in love with a sport. Through um, the, the through photos, through through capturing the images, just obsessing about them and overanalyzing them to no end, and uh, a good number of those photos were coming through your camera lens. That's a uh, you, with with great power comes great responsibility, big guy. Well, um, I, I guess maybe luckily I I never felt the weight of that responsibility on my shoulders, but I I guess I kind of delivered. And, you know, people do come up to me um, at the races. Uh, you know, I went to Unadilla's MX Rewind, a, a big vintage event that they have. And a lot of the old vet riders came up to me, you know, guys that I've met for the first time. And they would tell me, you know, we grew up looking at, at your photos, um uh, you know, of Mark Barnett, Bob Hanna, David Bailey, Ricky Johnson, um, Ricky Carmichael, Kevin Wyndham. So it, 
you know, when a guy says, hey, I grew up looking at your photos, that's so flattering to me that they kind of bothered to, you know, look at who took them and and kind of noticed that a bunch of them were mine and then to come up to me years later and tell me that. So I, um, you know, extremely flattered when that happens and and luckily it it happens uh, quite a bit. And I, I think it's all because I've, I guess, been on a quest to get, like, the ultimate motocross photo. I've got some pretty good ones, um, but there's still a few photos there that, man, I wish I had one like that. Like, there's a, a shot of Roger DeCoster from Carlsbad with a Bell Ray banner in the background, and he's just railing this berm, perfect form. The bars are just inches from the dirt, um, and everything is just just working in that photo. And I, I've got a, a few photos where everything's just right, but that's what I've always kind of strived for. So maybe that's what has made my photos different from a lot of photographers. And maybe that's why so many people have in, have enjoyed them and kind of paid attention to who shot them and appreciated them. Well, for sure. And, and uh, for for a guy like yourself, like I know there's a lot of photographers out there, and I speak to them uh, on a regular basis when I go to these races, and a lot of them, uh, they know they, they take a lot of good photos. Uh, maybe they're not all, all perfect, but they, they're they're cognitive of the fact that they take some, some really iconic photos, and, and sometimes they maybe rest on that a little bit. They're like, yeah, I've got some great photos out there, but it seems like you, more of a perf- perfectionist or just uh, striving to have that a little bit better, like there's there's a lot of photographers that could only wish to take a photo, uh, some of the photos that you've taken uh, in the past, and uh, and yet you're still searching for that, uh, to that 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 next level photo. Is that kind of what keeps you keep you going at it for all these years, man? Because uh, I gotta say, um, it's it, it's quite the history that you've captured. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, even. Um when I show up at a local race, you know, around here I shoot, you know, two races a weekend from March until, I guess last year I saw it shot up until December. So I I still try to approach every race like that, trying to find a spot on the track um, that'll give me good action, a good background to, you know, to try to get that next, awesome photo um, you know just trying to I guess complete the quest for the ultimate motocross photo so well, for sure yeah and like uh, do, do you find that the the subject in the photo kind of makes it a little bit like you'd mentioned Roger DeCosta he's the man he is uh as about as respected and honored of a of an individual within the sport that we have he's kind of like our uh he's our Wayne Gretzky Gordy Howe as far as like a, like if you're going to make a, a a stick and ball sport uh reference um like is 
like could a could a, a, a local race in uh, in in Peabody near close to Peabody Mass uh, produce that photo, or would it have to have a, a Ken Rocks and an e- Eli Tomac in that frame to uh, just kind of like just tie it like uh, the take it to that next level? Um, yeah, you know, I I think it would need to have uh, somebody of that stature or or close to it to. Um, you know, to make it the whole package. Yeah. Um, and and even you know, guys of Roger's stature in the motocross world, there have been some guys who have been crazy awesome to shoot, hard to get a bad photo of. Uh, Kevin Windham, for example, um, just a, an awesome style. Pretty much from his, you know, days on a 125 Yamaha, all the way through, never went through a corner looking bad. Never looked awkward, so that made my job a, a ton easier. You know, David Bailey, the same thing, just perfect style. Ron Machine, same thing. Um, so that definitely helps. There's definitely been some fast guys who were hanging on and going crazy fast, but <laughs> there are some photos that maybe I never let the uh, let them out to see the light of day just because they looked bad. Yeah, you have a bunch of guys that uh, are, are on the gas. They're they're moving through the the like uh, the, through the Buckley berm like no tomorrow. But uh, say a guy like David Villeman, who is more often than not known for uh, dragging his inside leg and have it kind of pulled off the bike. Like, I don't care how fast you're going; that never looks good in a photo. Um, like, uh, was there or is, it, is there an equal amount of both? Like guys that kind of are just eye candy regardless of what they're doing versus guys who uh, never seem to look like they know what they're doing um on, on, on the bike when they're when they're out there um you know that it, it's probably like anything else there's probably a few guys that look crazy awesome a few guys that man they, these guys sure go fast but it's a challenge to shoot them and then there's a bunch of guys going pretty good and they look, yeah, they look, they look pretty good. They don't look horrible, and once in a while they look awesome. So it's kind of a mix, probably a you know a bell curve, a bunch of guys at at one end, a few guys at yeah. the other end, and a bunch of guys in the middle. A bunch of guys that look uh, kind of okay. I, I always find that I, like local photographers, they, uh, they 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 always compliment me on the fact that like, cause I was I don't I never got to ride a ton as a kid, but when I did get to ride, my dad often had me do like a riding school or like a a private lesson with somebody. So whenever I was riding, I was always getting taught. I was always ex- like kind of accentuating really good. Um, good technique or whatever technique was being taught to me at the time. So like it's, it's, I always find it easy for myself to get that kind of, I wouldn't say Kevin Windham ish. I wouldn't go as far as to say that I, I have that kind of style, but just that elbows up, 
chest out, head over the the, the bars, so, sort of uh, almost kind of I wouldn't say textbook, but I guess close to as close to textbook as I can get it. And uh, um, that that's one thing that uh, I, I take pride in. But um, like like I mentioned just a few minutes ago, the Buckley Berm. They're like. The, we have LaRocco's Leap. We had the Chuck Sun Jump. Those guys are racers. Those guys are are known for sending the, their motorcycle uh, uh, just over uh, over 100 feet through the air. Uh, they're not known for capturing images of the sport. How does a photographer like basically lay claim to a, a berm that he uh, most likely has never uh, twisted the throttle through? Uh, well, you're right. I've I've never ridden through the Buckley Berm. Um, you probably should at some point, man. <laughs> Even on a quad, I think you should have to do it. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, I might have ridden through there on a like a Kawasaki mule once, but uh, never on a dirt bike. Fair enough. But the the Buckley Berm at, at Southwick is this awesome turn. It's a a left hand there at the top of a little hill and when it when I first started shooting there it was laid out in such a way that everybody who went through that turn from the 100cc novice who just started he's got electrical tape members on his bike to the you know, local expert or, um, you know, Pierre Cars Makers winning the Southwick National would go through this turn and look like a hero. Bars dragging, roost flying, you know, had a nice background. Uh, the grandstands of Southwick would be in the background, packed with people. So it had everything I liked. So naturally, I shot a ton of photos there. And at first, it was called the Photographer's Corner back in the day when there were a couple other guys in New England that shot motocross. Um, and after a few years, they kind of moved on to something else. But I stuck around and kept shooting at this corner. So it, it just kind of got to be known as the Buckley Berm, just because I shot so many photos there. And, um, you know, the, the name kind of stuck, and pretty soon the guys on TV were, you know, talking about what was happening in the Buckley Berm, and uh, the guys at Racer X have shot videos of me kind of walking by, making a cameo appearance. Um, and even at this last... Southwick National, the the Johnsons, Rick and uh, his son Keith, who run the track now, put up a, a big sign commemorating the Buckley Berm. So, um, it's pretty much the result of shooting thousands and thousands, and I can't even count how many photos I've shot there. I'm sure every single racer in New England has a, a few photos of himself in the Buckley Berm, and I've had probably hundreds of photos published in, you know, Racer X, Motocross Action, the Fox Catalog, um, tons of magazines around the world from the Buckley Berm. Uh, 
I guess when you hang out at a place for so long, it's almost like squatter rights. But, uh, yeah, no kidding. You just uh, you've you've you've, ta- if you've if you've taken uh, four digits worth of photos at, at one particular broom, you get to call it your own. And uh, even uh, another photographer that's uh, made a, made his, a few appearances on the podcast with me. <laughs> Is, uh, is is Mike Sweeney, who you actually might be familiar with, um, and uh, his one of his only his his one and only cover was uh, uh, was Guy Cooper ripping out of the Buckley Berm. I believe that was a, a, a motocross action cover. So uh, that's pretty cool in and of itself. That uh, um, like I don't know if it's your berm, but yeah, I, I guess you'd call it yeah the the, the Buckley Berm uh, producing uh, not only photos for yourself but uh, other uh, uh, aspiring photographers alike. Oh yeah, um, you know probably every photographer from around the country or the world that's traveled to Southwick has undoubtedly shot photos in the Buckley Perm. It's just a, a great photo corner. So it's it would be hard to go to Southwick and not shoot a few photos there. I'm kidding. You got to keep that up, man. Well, um, what, what keep like we mentioned like you're continuously searching for uh, that that great photo. But what what uh, made you stop coming to the races full time in 2007? Basically, capping off uh, four full decades or three full decades of of coming to the races uh, nonstop. Well, um, I guess there were there were a few factors. Um, after 9/11 happened, it, it got pretty hard to travel with a, a camera case full of electronics and cords and batteries. Uh, you know, security was a bitch, and, th- and I'm sure it still is today. Yes. So that was one. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm out here on the East Coast, so flying from here to Anaheim and then from Anaheim to Boston and then from Boston to Phoenix and Phoenix to Boston um, in San Diego, just got to be a, kind of a drag. You know, everybody says, "Oh, it's got to be cool flying to all these races." It's like, well, it kind of is. It gets you, old quick. <laughs> it, it does get old quick. Um, you know, I'd be I'd be on planes for two days out of the week. And I had, you know, I have uh, two sons, and they're 18 and 21 now. So in 2007, you know, they were, I don't know, <laughs> do the math. <laughs> um, oh, they were seven and eight years old. They were, they were just... Uh, yeah, nice. right. So, you know, that back then they still liked to hang around with mom and dad. So I was kind of thinking, well, maybe I should, like hang around here a little more often instead of shooting 40 local races a year and traveling off every weekend in the wintertime to shoot crosses. So that was another big factor. And then also uh, another factor was um, all the kids showing up with digital cameras and shooting 3,000 photos and giving them away. For free. That's the biggest thing right there. 
That's, right. uh, I find that uh, it's, it's uh, I think it, it's definitely um, hurt hurt the basically the the community of the photographers, and I think it's created more animosity between photographers. Um, is that there's a ton of guys out there that uh, they're just they're 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 happy just to have a press credential so they can be just a little bit closer to the action. Whether or not they get paid for it is a totally uh, a, like kind of almost like a secondary thing, and um, it, it definitely upsets some of your your longtime uh, regulars, guys like uh, Guy B or, uh, or or Brown Dog Wilson. Um, those guys have been at it for quite some time, and then you got uh, young, younger photographers that have uh, have a ten thousand dollar camera set up, and uh, they just uh, like they're just trigger happy all day long, and they're not really getting too much compensation from it. And for that reason, like like say it's Thor or um, like any apparel company, they're like like it brings the price down for everybody. Um, it, it, it does, you know, which is, um, pretty unfortunate. And I think it's, you know, it's not a motor photography. I'm sure it happens in any kind of action sport where shooting something is fun, something that, you know, people would like to do for a hobby, you know, and unfortunately, uh, the digital cameras just keep getting better and better and cheaper and cheaper. So if somebody said, Hey Paul, I, um, you know, my kid wants to be a motocross photographer. He wants to go spend four years in college learning how to do it. And then he wants to spend, you know, 25 grand on equipment, travel around the country and do it for a living. I, Boy, I, I I would tell that dad, geez, you know, um, yeah, I think twice, just because I think it's just going to get worse and worse. It's definitely not going to get better. Uh, I think that's just the yeah, way no, it is. Yeah, no, for sure. It's uh, it's a doggy dog world out there, and yeah, there's more and more. And I think the 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 cost of travel has to be absolutely extraordinary for you guys to do what you do and uh like the just the, the, the what you would have to charge uh or how many people you would have to work for to offset those costs would be astronomical i, I can't imagine i gotta imagine that um like any photographer that's there has to have at least seven to ten accounts that they're servicing on a particular weekend just so that they can uh cover all their bases oh for sure um you know, the, the cost of, of traveling and the cost of equipment. And then, you know, these guys are entitled to make a, a good living. You know, they're, they're talented artists working pretty darn hard. Um, you know, shooting, shooting a national is, is hard work. It's, um, you know, hiking around Southwick from, Seven seven in the morning until five or six at night. It's a long, hot, hard day. Um, so for some of the best photographers in the world to be to be doing that and kind of scratching to make a living is kind of crazy. And I would hope that the kids that show up and shoot. 2,000 photos and, and start giving them away for free would kind of 
you know, maybe sit back and say, if somebody showed up where my dad worked and, you know, say their dad's a mechanic, if, if somebody showed up at the shop where my dad worked and changed oil for free and, you know, maybe didn't do quite a good job as my dad, but did it enough so that it cost my dad, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks a week, would they be mad? And I, I think if they kind of thought about it that way, they probably would. I don't know if that's enough for them to, you know, maybe knock it off and at least try and charge for their for their work so they're on a equal playing field with uh, the guys who are traveling the whole country trying to do it for a living. But I, I wish they would kind of look at it that way. You know, if somebody took a couple hundred bucks out of their wallet by doing their job for free, it would make them mad. Yeah, no, I, I, I as a bricklayer, like I, it's my full time position is a, is, a, is a bricklayer here in Winnipeg, and, and a unionized bricklayer is that uh, um, we we totally union line, and like I don't really everything doesn't have to come down to a union, but just as far as uh, just a, like an agreement between uh, workers that uh, we're not going to basically discount our our, our work, and uh, yeah, like like friendly competition is 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 what it is, but the fact is is that. Uh, if you're if you're willing to do it for less, that means I'm going to be expected to do it for less, and uh, like that's why every time I go to a job site, I have to take my my journeyman rate, and I, I, I if I, I can't accept anything less, um, be, just because of my the people who've come before me have have fought just to have those uh the, the, those dollars come in, and uh, I think that um. It's 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 a bit of a touchy touchy subject with a lot of guys out there, especially because, like you said, there's always a lot of young kids that uh, they're they're just great. They're just uh, happy to be on the other side of the fence. Uh, whether or not that actually uh, turns into uh, a lot of uh, uh, financial reward is kind of irrelevant to them. But um, getting back to, to to your work and uh, and and kind of since you, you've been at it for a long period of time, in fact, I believe when you started, uh, you, you could buy a, a McDonald's uh, cheese. Or it was a hamburger at the time for about fifteen cents. And uh, cheeseburger was 19 cents, um, but um, I don't make you sound too old. But that is the reality of it. Um, I, I imagine that your collection of cameras, and I, I hope that you have a lot of them from from uh, years gone by. That uh, your 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 collection's got to be pretty extension extensive by now. Um, it, it's actually not. Um, you know, I've I've gone through a fair number of cameras. I can't even count how many. But back in the day when I was shooting with, you know, Canon TLBs or AE-1s before I kind of upgraded to Canon F1s um, and then the EOS series, the early days they were almost disposable. Um, they They were just a few hundred dollars Sometimes I'd send them back to Canon, Canon, and they would say, what did you do to this camera? It just looks older than the whole line could be. Um, And sometimes they would just send me a new body instead of trying to fix it. But um, so a lot of those 
would just end up in the trash. I would just take a an 81 body and it would be just so full of dust and dirt that rained on that it would just it would literally go in the trash and I would just go down to the camera store a few hundred bucks later, new body, back in business. Um, there you go. And then when I upgraded, you know, to the Canon F1s and EOS 1s, um, and then the EOS 1D series, the professional digital series, they're much heavier duty. So I, luckily I was able to, you know, sell the, the previous series when I would upgrade my cameras. So right now I just have the, uh, my current digital cameras that I shoot with and, and, and not a big shelf of old Canon 81s, T90s, F1s, EOS 1s, or the, the TLBs from back in the day. Um, it was kind of crazy. I was thinking when I first went to Southwick in 76, I had one camera body, a 50-millimeter lens, and a 200-millimeter lens. And all that gear cost less than the batteries I have for my EOS 1Ds <laughs> these days. Just the wow. batteries. Well, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's really gotten crazy with what... Uh, um, what the the whole setup costs and, and just like the the investment in it, um, like it it's like on an annual basis, what would you say you spend on cameras? Or maybe when you were doing it full time, what were you spending on cameras? Well, let's see. Back in two thousand two, when Canon came out with the EOS one D, the first camera that I said, okay, this this can shoot motocross. It, it was fast enough, the file size was big enough, and the price was right. You know, they were about seven grand, maybe 7500 And for a few years, they made advancements in digital technology. So it was almost like a computer, like, oh man, those two-year-old cameras, they're, they're outdated. So I went through probably a half a dozen of those bodies in the span of um, five or six years. So, you know, that was what, like, um, almost 40-something thousand dollars in, in a short span. Luckily, things have right. Uh, luckily, things have stabilized so that the cameras I'm shooting with now, which are pretty old, still do a good job. And I haven't had. Yeah, no, it's you get along like uh, over the years. I'm sure you get a lot of longevity out of stuff and learn how to take care of it to the point where you're not having to replace things. All the time. Uh, how how detrimental is a, a race like uh, the second moto for the 250s this last weekend uh, to a camera setup? Um, I can only imagine that there were uh, about 40 
pairs of goggles on the ground afterwards uh, and, mo- and more than a couple of cameras that needed some serious TLC uh, after that weekend was done. Um, what's, what's that process like and how do you protect a camera in, in, in a ride day like that? Well, um, did you see the big Red Bull tent that was in the middle of the track? I did. That's where I was. Um, you know, these days, um, since I'm not shooting full-time for, for a bunch of clients and shooting more for the track, a, a whole bunch of muddy photos, I'm probably not going to sell them a bunch of tickets for next year's national. Fair enough. So I just kind of hung out and waited for the rain to slow down. But, um, you know, rain's pretty tough on digital cameras since they're so electronic. The the good bodies are, are sealed up pretty well these days. So the, the pro guys can kind of weather the storm, as it be. Um, I, I'm still pretty good at covering them up with plastic if I had to be out there in the rain. Um, I got... Um, one of the last Southwick Nationals that I think Justin Barsha won in just a torrential downpour with my cameras wrapped up in plastic, and and they survived. But, you know, anybody who was out there shooting Southwick with anything less than a, you know, a Pro Series Nikon or a Pro Series Canon probably has a dead camera now. Um, you know, anything that's not sealed up with O-rings and has drain channels built in it um, is pretty likely toast now. No kidding. Uh, I gotta, I gotta ask if you, you, ima- I imagined you were uh, uh, in in attendance when uh, when Carmichael lapped the field, Millville 2006. Uh, and if you weren't, that's too bad. But uh, do you have any any iconic uh, or uh, mud photos that uh, stand out? Because uh, sometimes, although you don't usually get too many great photos from a mud race, uh, just because of the optics of it all. But uh, do you have some good ones? Um, yeah, I, I actually do. I've got, um, you know, a, a shot of Jeff Ward from the MX Destinations at Unadilla in 1987. He's got a open face helmet, no goggles on, covered with mud, um, just roosting on his KX500, black and white, um, that Dunlop made into one of their Legend Series posters, so that's that's one. Then there's one of Doug Henry on the, I can't remember if it's a 400 or a 450 Yamaha at Southwick. Uh, coming over a turn, and all you can see that's not covered with mud is the strip of his goggles that are covered by roll-offs, and he had just cleared them. Yeah. So it's a shot of him. He might even have his hand up on the string. I can't quite remember, but his eyes are crystal clear, nice, clean, bright colored. Um, so that's another one. And let's see. There's, there's probably a, a few others, but those are the two that kind of pop into my mind. Um, 
let's see, how, how are we doing on, on time here? You know, I got all kinds of time for Paul Buckley. There's, there's no, I don't, I, there's, there's no cap as far as how much time we're, we're about an hour into this thing, but uh, I'm loving every minute of it. So just keep talking, brother. Well, I, I was, I was, I was kind of thinking the other, other way, like if we had enough, um, enough on the tape to start wrapping it up, or. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to ask you was about uh, uh, social media and the sharing of your photos. Uh, I know there's a ton of great photos that get thrown around all the time, but uh, um, what, what's your view on, on just like like accounts taking photos, sharing them, and uh, do you feel like they should have to pay for them, or do you get upset when people share one of your photos without tagging? Of course, you are the Paul Buckley on, on Instagram. Uh, what's your take on all that? Um. If if somebody goes to one of my Facebook pages and shares it so that my page, either my personal page or my Buckley Classic Photo page is still tagged in it, I'm fine with that. That way it's like directly linked back to me. But if somebody, you know, downloads a photo of mine and then publishes it to their Facebook page. Um, you know, I don't care if it's 90s motocross, this old motocrosser. I know there's a few guys that, you know, post tons of photos from back in the day. Um, but I just hate it. You know, I think they're just, you know, stealing my photos to... To get to get their own fame, to like, get the, their own fame, um, you know. And I've I've talked to a few of those guys and told them, you know, like, don't publish, don't post my photos without a photo credit and a link. And you know, sometimes they're they're good and respect that. Um, and sometimes they get all upset. There's they'll say stuff like, oh, if it's if it's on the internet, it's public domain, which is, is false. Um, and they, they'll say stuff like, well, you know, any photographer would, would be glad to have one of his photos on our page because of the publicity. But, you know, if, if you don't give me or whoever shot the photo a credit and a link to their site or to their page, then it's, you know, not doing any good and it's actually doing harm because the photographers put photos on their page or on their website so that people will go to their page or to their website to see those photos and potentially buy some prints and, you know, keep these guys making a living. So if somebody has a page with 10,000 photos that they've swiped from, you know, magazine scans or, you know, Google image searches and everybody's just going to their page, well, then it's, it's hurting all the photographers that, are, are trying to make a legitimate living. So I, 
definitely not a fan of that. For sure, and and, and I've de- it's definitely been something I've had to learn as I've uh, kind of uh, over the years. Uh, sometimes if I don't know the photographer, uh, or if I uh, if I like I did know the photographer and totally just slipped my mind to uh, to, to, to tag them. I've uh, I wouldn't say I've gotten in trouble, but I've had, I've just had discussions with uh, different photographers in, in the past, and uh, and so, some are easier to deal with than, than others. Uh, and um, like you said, as long as there's that there's a tag and maybe a link in the bio um, as to where you might find more of those photos, most most photographers uh, are are happy to get a little bit of exposure uh, and maybe like more people going to their website to, to get some prints or something like that. But uh, like even for like and like I don't just want to bash one particular account, but say uh, there's a there was a, a um, there was an account that uh, had a video of James Stewart going through a rhythm section, <clears throat> and uh, the, I I, I kind of I reposted it uh, and. Um, like he, like I reposted the video, but didn't repost who I who I got it from, and that that individual commented in my comments and said original vi- original video on uh, on on my account or, or like at uh, at Supercross King, and I replied back original content on ESPN, like <laughs> like really in in reality like the it, like it was never owned by the person who shared it the like, oh, the first time. time. Yeah, like I was just like I didn't really feel like I was like that's not really yours to say that yeah or even when '90s motocross has that little like the a little um like a a watermark on all their videos and I'm mm-hmm. like but you but you ripped it off of Wild World of Sports <laughs> how is that yours <laughs> right right. You know what I mean? Like that, just stuff like that. Kind of like I just have an eyebrow raised and stuff like that. But uh, I, I think that like a, a tag, like what, actually tagging on the photo as well as uh, in the in the uh, the description of the photo, um, I think that's uh, like like that's the bare minimum someone can do. Right. Yeah. I would um, think they would have, you know, enough respect for the photographer to to do that. Um, for sure. Uh, um, final, final notes here, uh, Paul Buckley. How 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 many more years do you think you're going to be taking photos at, uh, uh, say, Unadilla or uh, or Southwick or uh, the many uh, local races in uh, near near the Southwick area? Um, it's hard to say. You know, I'm uh, 61 years old, but I still feel pretty good. Um, you know, I, I definitely feel a lot better than I picture it I would when I was, you know, 30 years old thinking, geez, well, I still be doing this when I'm 61, 65. But, um, you know, it's obviously still fun and I can still do it. I can still shoot photos that um, racers will come up to me and go, oh, man, that's so sick. So I guess as long as I can still do it, have a good time, make make a living at it, um, I guess I don't have a a deadline. Well, keep keep that open wide. Keep that wide open, my friend. I hope to uh, uh, get a photo credential for a Southwick National in the years to come, and uh, we'll be uh, elbow to elbow trying to get a good angle for the Buckley Berm uh, in years <laughs> to come. Well, uh, that'd be cool, Brad. Um, and um, you know, I'd even like you shoot some photos in there for free. I wouldn't charge you. 
<laughs> Perfect. Uh, awesome, man. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you giving us some time here on the Big MX Radio podcast. Uh, almost uh, a good, almost an hour and fifteen altogether uh, recorded tonight, and we will put this out tomorrow. Um, I really appreciate the time, my friend. Yeah, no problem, Brad. I appreciate you calling and uh, thinking of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs>